Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Creating Structure Podcast. I'm your host, John Wheaton. Great to have you. And my guest today is Renz F. Hayes, the fourth PE. Renz is a co-founder and principal of H&O Structural Engineering in Boston, Massachusetts. Renz, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. We're excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you. And one of the one of the pieces of feedback I've gotten from some of my friends who are my age about are like, hey, have more young professionals on the show. I'm like, okay. <laughs> we know a thing or two, right? You know a thing or two. And um, so I'm really glad. Well, for sake of context, interestingly, you and I really met, I believe, on the PSMJ Executive Forum thread, didn't we? That's right. I think we're both active participants. So through that forum, we're kind of sharing all different things from organizational strategy and benefits and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, we just generally found ourselves kind of aligning in the way we thought and led our organizations. So we started to build a relationship from there. Well, let's hope as an optimist, let's hope that you're mature beyond your years. And I think younger than I really am. Maybe that's the reason why we connected because <laughs> you've got some You've got some insightful comments, and um, we'll talk a bit about structural engineering and entrepreneurialism and just just stuff, just business stuff. So um, you are the co-founder and principal of H&O. You said you started in 2016? That's correct, yeah. Okay, great. So tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do, where you went to school. Just give us the background of how you got to this space. Awesome. Uh, so obviously I'm Renzi's H&O Structural Engineering. Uh, I started off my family business as a structural steel fabricating and erecting company. And we also did Miss Iron. So I grew up in the steel industry. Uh, it was my father's business. And so I always kind of wanted to work in the building world. And one of the things like as I was coming through high school, I was like, I got to go figure out how to design these buildings so we can design them and then build them. And that's kind of what set me off on the path of structural engineering. Um, I went to WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Mass. And that's where I got uh, undergrad and grad degree, got a master's as well, because it accelerated the timeline that I could get my uh, PE license. Wow. And uh, I think part of, even from high school, I kind of always had my eyes set on starting my own firm, largely. My dad ran his own business. A lot of my friends, I, I lived in in Norton, Mass is where I grew up, which is about 45 minutes outside of Boston. A lot of the people that I saw as successful in my life all own their own business. So that was the only way I knew how to do it. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the accelerator. And once I got my license, um, I actually left. I worked for a large engineering firm in downtown Boston, got exposed to high rise buildings and some of the best in the business. Right after I got my license, I left and I went back to the steel business and started doing some engineering on the side and kind of building things through word of mouth and supporting clients of the steel company. And the idea was to do a design build company. And that's where I really got exposed to how to build and grow an organization. Cause instead of just being responsible for managing design projects, I got exposed to business financials, business strategy, like where are we trying to go as a company? I had a whole new set of criteria on how to make decisions and lead with my day. And it totally changed how I, I operated. And um, so that's kind of fundamental to, to my, my backstory and to how we led into launching h and Don't you think it's valuable when uh, 
civil engineers, any form of engineering, but let's let's confine it to civil structural engineers since that's what we're talking about. Don't you find it valuable when you have that experience in metals or construction or fabrication and actually just that the grittiness of those applications? Do you find that to have really benefited you? Oh, tremendous asset. Even from early in my career, one thing I had was like senior engineers, way better engineers and building experience, design experience than I had would be asking me like, hey, could they build this? Can you weld this? Like, can you get in there? Yeah. And so I kind of found a unique, like I, I had that something to hang my hat on early in my career. Um, as I've continued to grow, like I, I understand like what it takes to, to lead a crane, to plan and load a truck and how to schedule like an install and sequencing and logistics of challenging jobs and all of that goes into how we make design decisions because we understand how things are built. So it's been a huge asset. Um, while I went back to run the engineer, uh, the steel company as well, I actually built a custom steel estimating process. So I systematized that and created the training program and the entire like Excel spreadsheet and takeoff process. So I have a very deep understanding of how to price both fab and install for steel, which translates to pretty much any trade when I need to think through it. Man, oh man. Uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a nerd. I'm I'm getting chills because uh, in the engineering profession, when one can think like their customer or better yet, one has been their customer that really changed. I, I know I have a metals background. My partner has a metals and installation background. You know, we were with PPG, CCG group, and then custom architectural metal systems division. And Many of the folks here, um, some of the folks here have, some have aged out, but oh my gosh, it, it helps so much to think. I always say we're the, we're the supporters, right? We, we want to say, what does it take? What is your vision, right? What do you want to accomplish? What problem do you need to solve? And then how can I use math and physics and construction means and methods and all those things to help you get it done, right? That's absolutely right. And you said it best. It's like when you can put yourself in your customer's shoes, see their problems and help them solve those problems, like success is only a matter of time, right? And when it comes to construction, like we're in the, the development, the, the building design profession, we're a small piece of the actual cost of a development, but we have a tremendous impact on the overall cost. And so when you can speak to the things that you understand what drives the costs and the other 95% of the development, you can really leverage your opportunity and separate yourself from a commodity market. Yeah, well said. I mean, we're talking, when we talk about costs, you know, engineers of record and even specialty delegated design engineers, we can be anywhere from a half percent to a percent and a half of the cost of construction, right? But mm-hmm. the, the downstream value or the downstream risk really to the client is huge for that cost. And uh, I, I've got a joke in mind, but I won't say it because it probably will offend some people. But anyway, let's move on. Um, tell us how uh, you have a mission that says a better experience for your team and your clients. So like it, when you started in 2016, you sound mature beyond your years. You've got this business experience growing up. What is the mission? What is the essence, your why? What is it that you do? And why do you feel that makes you guys a little bit different than a competition? Sure, yeah. 
So a better experience, uh, we mean that through and through. It's like a part of how we make decisions. It's a part of how we operate. So as we launched our engineering business, we really were solving two core problems. Uh, first was the career. Like the second I stepped into structural engineering, I immediately saw the career ceiling if all I did was engineer. Exactly. That was, that was some of my drive on developing and launching our own company was that we could create a better way so that we could provide upside. And engineering in general is a highly respected, sought after career, right? Mm-hmm. We have a ton of autonomy. We have a ton of control. We have we have power as, as far as a design and a development project goes because people have to get our approval to do certain things. Like so, there's a sense, there's definitely pride and respect there, but there really is a career ceiling that's inherent to the industry, and I see that as primarily like an organizational flaw. Like a lot of companies are launched from engineers that think they can do better, they can drive their own work, they can lead design, they can make those decisions. But what has to happen is they have to learn how to build a business and how to create an organizational, an organization that creates value and opportunity for their people, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you when you start off with one angle of I can design buildings on my own, and you just naturally grow through doing good work, you there's other there's skeletons in the closet as far as an organizational structure goes, and you have to address those to overcome that hurdle. And the people that take the brunt of those issues is the workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we say a better experience, we're trying to create a better work experience for our team. At the end of the day, we deliver our services, structural engineering, but the company is the product. That's a great game of business thing, which I think we should talk about today, open book financial management process, but the company is the product. So if we can't create a company that is fulfilling, creates opportunity is people enjoy working at and is there when they need it to provide for their families, then what's the point? Like the company's the product and the people make up the company. So we need to create an experience that's fulfilling and provides all those things for our team. And then from the client angle, we see the the major pain points um, when we ask clients or talk about like, what's your frustration in working with design sub consultants that's generally non-responsive or rigid in the way. This is how we've always done things, right? They're rigid. They don't want to change. That leads to like a less than stellar experience, right? There's a lot of frustrations that go on through there. There's somebody you have to hire to be able to do what you want to do. I want to, I want to build a development. I want to build a building. I need to hire an engineer. They're, they're a required step. No one hires an engineer just because they think engineering is cooling. Cool. They're just trying <laughs> to build the building. So the better, if, if we can make that painless for them and actually show that we want to understand their problems, understand what success looks like, and we've built a team and a culture that is trying to do the same thing so that we can support their success. Um, we're again, just separating ourselves from the commodity and actually focusing on the real problem. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, the non-responsive, that's a really good differentiator. I say all the time, and, and this sounds simple. I just, I said this earlier to a young man, we had a call, one of our listeners, I said, communication is the differentiator. Communication in many forms, time of communication, content, context, all the different S. But you and I both know, Renz, and for those who may not know out there in construction, that um, communication, that category of communication or lack thereof is the number one cause for E&O claims for engineers and architects. Number one cause, communication, lack of communication, poor communication, whatever it is. So that's great. So responsiveness. So 
do you have some, um, you have a mindset. Uh, do you have some processes? I mean, to the extent that you can share, have you built some specific processes or means to help facilitate responsiveness and less rigidity? Or is it just in how you mentor and model to the rest of the staff? Yeah, I think we could probably have an entire podcast just on this one conversation. Um, something that's really important, those that mission, vision, and values, right? Painting, what is our purpose? A better experience. And then our three core values that support that mission are embrace growth, be a partner, and be responsive. And at face value, a lot of people will say like, ah, mission, vision, values, like, sure, we have them. They don't really mean anything. And they don't mean anything if it's something you put on your website or wrote on the wall, and then you never refer to them again. It's something like, is it a part of your inherent decision-making? Have you shown how that does create value and is aligned with the organizational strategy? So be responsive is a core value. And it's something we talk about every week, if not every day, it's a part of like how we make decisions and think. So what that's doing is that's giving our team context, right? And then we have to have a design process and deliverables and quality standards that allow them to take that context. We're putting them in an operational model where they can, they have the freedom now to make decisions and do their job. Yeah, well said. Another, I think a good example here on how to be responsive, um, I I should say, non-responsive companies, that is an organizational flaw. It's generally not an individual issue. It's the result of burnout and overwhelm. Mm. So there's a whole there's there's a ton of organizational challenges that can lead to things like non-responsive and rigid in the way we do things. So I think you can solve those organizationally. But a good example, if you're working towards a deadline, you're overwhelmed, you don't know how you're going to get all your work done, and somebody sends you a complicated email. This isn't a, a two-minute email response, like you got to do some technical work. This is a half hour, hour, two hour thing. When you're overwhelmed, the tendency is to say like, oh, I'll get back to them. I'll get back to them. And what happens is that email sits for a day, two days, three days. Now, what's the client on the other side? It's okay that you're busy. That's not the problem. The problem is it's that they reached out and now they're, it's three days have gone by and they're wondering like, am I important to them? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they're working for me. And now they're not acknowledging that I exist. They must not care about me. They must not care about my problems. And that's really frustrating when what we coach our team in that, it's okay to be busy. It's okay to not have an answer then. What you need to do is respond, hey, we received your email. I'm going to get back to you by Friday. And then let that happen. Now they know that you got the email, that you care. And they know when to expect to get back to you. It's not, it's not unknown. Hey, I'll get back to you because now that's vague and three days go by. They still don't think you care. You gave them a timeline of expectations. Now, two things can happen. The client can say like, okay, great. Thanks. Or, Hey, this is urgent. I need this tomorrow. Now we can reassess our priorities and problem solve. But we at least made that initial communication. And now we understand what each other needs. Boy, that's so well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's an acknowledgement, right? It, if you can, and as engineers, as any kind of technical professional, but again, confining it to the engineers in our trade, I think the tendency for engineers educationally and from our mindset is, if I can't solve that problem, I'm not even going to answer it. To your point, and like for instance, yesterday I had a meeting on a Boston area job, and um, 
I told the contractor, they're like, well, this has got to get done quickly. Uh, occupancy is in 16 weeks or whatever. And I said, okay, I'll get, I'll get a reevaluation of the reactions by tomorrow. They said, great. Well, about 2.15 today, whether I had the podcast or not, to your point, I said to myself, man, I'm making a lot of progress, but they don't know that because they're not going to see this by the end of the day because it's taking me longer than I thought. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I said, hey, everybody, for the sake of transparency and accountability, I've spent half my day on this, going back in detail, making really good progress, but I'm not going to have a deliverable for you today. I would expect to have it tomorrow. Just, just letting you know what's up. And they're going to be okay with that. And to your point, I, I like what you said. If the answer is, oh, we can't wait till Friday, right? In your example, then somebody goes to you or their boss and says, hey, what gives? Like, should I do this or should I do that? Or can we buy some time or can you jump in? So that's, that's outstanding, Renz. I, communication, again, that's key. Talk to us about the people you serve. You talk about architects and real estate developers. Like, is that your main clientele? Yeah, for sure. So we we serve architects and real estate developers pretty much do all private development work at this point. We're not really doing public work. Um, we find that our values really align with that kind of sector. Uh, when, when I think about the importance of a client, as structural engineers, I always feel like our job's a little easier than, say, an architect, right? It's one thing. If, if you're an architect that does multifamily and then you have an opportunity to do a lab building, they're two totally different skill sets. It's not like you can jump out of here and say, yeah, like I can make that happen. Yeah. Uh, from a structural engineering perspective, like the building's the building. There's different materials. There's different loads. Like there's different mechanical coordination. There's different facades. But the type of building really is not important to us. We're confident in our ability to design any building out there. What we really care about is value alignment with our clients. And something I talk about a lot on LinkedIn too is, and with our team, we have to say no to the wrong work so that we create space to deliver value for the right work and the right client. Mm. So that's really what we focus on. Yeah, that's tough. The people that know me well will know that I often struggled with that little two letter word and complete sentence, no. Mm. Because, <laughs> you know, early on, early on in the business, the test, you know, for a, a capable potential employee or client was, did they create a fog on a mirror when they breathe? And do they have anything that they need help with? And so I was a little less discerning at the start. And you definitely have to be more specific and focused as you grow. So I really like that. Say that again. You have to say no to the wrong work. So that you can say yes to the right work. Love it. Really, really well said. You, to your point, when you're starting off, you have a different set of problems. Like you got to generate revenue just to have a sustainable business. You got to create cash flow. So saying yes to more work in the beginning is okay. It's like as you start to grow, you got to be real. You got to be aware of where you are as a company and what type of work you should be doing. And I think reviewing revenue and profitability from a client and a market and a building type is super important year over year, quarter after quarter. Because as we grow, we're talking about burnout, overwhelm, career ceilings, like quality and customer experience starts to decline. A lot of that can happen. If, if your company grows 30% and you, don't, you haven't been out there building brand awareness and you don't have a strategic hiring plan to hire the people necessary to handle that growth, guess what's going to happen? Your team's going to get overwhelmed. Your quality is going to go down. So what do you have to do? You have to look at like, 
what work coming up is important to where we're going as a company and what work do we currently do that's not aligned with where we're going? And you have to start saying no to the current work so that you can create room for the growth. And that's how you maintain balance there. That's how you maintain growth, even in a tough hiring condition, because you got to say no to the wrong work so that you can create room for the right work. Well said, I've been there, um, been there, made all the mistakes. And uh, it's it's good to hear that. Uh, one thing before we move on from this topic, you know, you talk about cost-effective design, support informed decision and meet deadlines. If you pull your clients, how important is that value of meeting deadlines? Very important. And I don't think it's something that people talk enough about. Um, but it's like, if you ever blow a deadline, it becomes a big issue. And how we manage that as a design firm is deadlines can mean different things, right? SD or design development or permit level or pricing level, there's different levels of drawing expectations and what that deliverable actually means to a particular client on a particular job. So if you're feeling like a schedule's tight and you need to meet a deliverable, um, and you're feeling that you don't have the necessary information, There's you're going to be getting ahead of decision-making by advancing design to that point to meet a deadline. You got to have the necessary conversations, like what is actually important here? This job, this type of design phase would typically be eight weeks. You're trying to cram it into five weeks. Like what's, what are you really trying to achieve with this set? And you might, you, you'd learn something that, all right, this isn't really a DD set. This is a rejection set, or this is a set to go out to investors to kind of make a pitch it's not actually a full pricing set or it's really a progress set. So now you can reevaluate, manage your time, avoid rework and scope creep and actually deliver value to the client at the deliverable that they need. Uh, the second piece of that is on private development. I mean, anytime you have a real submittal, there's a process behind it, there's a review behind it, there's money, there's equity, there's debt, and those are real pressure deadlines for our clients. And if we don't acknowledge that they're important, it can put them in a really tough spot. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. I, I, I think when we pull our clients, the most common top value we would hear back is meets or exceeds schedule. It's like, yeah, you got to be able to do what you do. I'm, I'm taking that for granted, but meet or exceeds schedule. And it's challenging at times, isn't it? I like your comment about there's different forms of meeting schedule, different milestones, different alignments. Is it a geometry set? Is it a four permit set? Is it a fielded file? Is it for review only? So that's really good. By the way, this is a totally off the wall question. How do you grow up in suburban Boston and not pack your car and have it yet and talk like that? You know, Great question. I don't have an answer for you. But even like earlier in my life, we traveled a lot around the States and everywhere we went, people couldn't place me in the country because I didn't have the Boston accent. And hey, no, no offense. I, I love I love that New England. <laughs> it's, got certain, it's got a certain charm to it, for sure. I worked at Lake Sunapee at, at an old, a now, a now demolished lodge that's been replaced by condos, but it was uh, Indian Cave Lodge in Sunapee, New Hampshire. And man, you talk about having to really, really listen to those older dudes that were speaking <laughs> rural, rural New Hampshire. It, I, I had to really listen because if you miss it the first time, you're not going to get a second shot. <laughs> so that's too funny. Yeah. So Boston was like, ah, oh, this is easy. I can understand this really well. 
<laughs> so that's fun. Um, okay, I have a question. You you were talking about a cost-effective design and such, and I'm going to jump kind of down and then come back. You have a um, on your LinkedIn profile. It says you have a certified value growth advisor uh, accreditation. What is that? What is that? So certified value growth advisor is a, it's an, it's an M&A certification, which is mergers and acquisitions. So it's a recognized certification in the mergers and acquisition space. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll I'll elaborate a little bit more on how I got down that path. Um, I learned when I was running the steel company with my father, that's when I invested in, in, and saw the value in becoming a lifelong learner. All I did was the job task in front of me. I was never going to gain new perspective. I was never going to grow beyond the task at hand. And once I got open, like, again, organizational strategy, managing people, managing clients, trying to grow a business, I started just listening to audiobooks every single day on my wow. commute, getting an hour a day. And that was back in 2014. So I'm seven years in of all this knowledge. And throughout growing a company and listening to all this content, I'd listen to leadership, marketing, sales, organizational structure, you name it, I listened to it. And I felt like I had all this knowledge and we were having success despite our flaws. And I would change something in operations that would require more of me and we'd show some improvement. And then I'd go to try to improve another area of the business. And I, I felt like I was kind of like just pulling strings. And as one thing would improve, the other thing would decline. And I felt like I had all this understanding of business growth and value and I couldn't figure out like, where do I start? Like I had no clue. Like I was like, I I feel like I'm not starting, I'm starting in the middle and it's creating a ton of problems. So I got to figure out where the bottom is and go back to there. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got exposed to mergers and acquisitions and the value What's the beauty of mergers and acquisitions. It's a totally unbiased, unobjective evaluation of organization assessment of organizational value. Right. It's not like what you, the owner, you, the employee thinks it is the market telling you what you think they think your business is worth. And we're all. Mm-hmm. So I started networking, saw the opportunity in being able to evaluate businesses. And I, I started networking in there heavily for a year. And that's when I came across the certified value growth program. And the head of that company is Ken Sanginario. He's a, a brilliant business mind. And what that program taught me, I actually, I didn't care so much about the certification because I'm running my own businesses. I'm not like an M&A advisor or consultant. Um, I was really interested in the education. So I went through the program and it taught me about organizational balance. And so I'll share, I'll share this with the team. Uh, there's eight core functions of a business, planning, leadership, sales, marketing, people, operations, finance, and legal. Most businesses are strong in two or three of those areas, and they're totally blind to the opportunity cost of the being deficient in the other five areas. So you think of that small company, they're doing really good work, and then they grow for a few years, they might double their their revenue, and then they come crashing back down. And what happened was, is their revenue and their operational growth exceeded the stability of their organizational structure. They were imbalanced. And that's what creates a lot of the organizational flaws that we were talking about earlier. And that gave me a, a very good perspective on how to evaluate an organization, look at it objectively, 
and identify, kind of do that root cause analysis pretty quickly. So instead of being drawn to the symptoms like non-responsive or rework and scope creep, like those are the high level things that we all get frustrated with on a day-to-day basis, but they're really the symptom of other organizational things. Being able to look and identify those has been tremendously valuable for me. Um, So the CBGA program, that kind of gave us the context. That's what also pushed me to understand the importance of mission, vision, and values. And when I alluded earlier to like, where do you start? That's where you start. How do you empower people or get somebody behind a vision of growing a company if you haven't told them what's important and where you're going? Can't do it. That's how you create alignment and you give people autonomy. Thanks for that. Um, I like that that you value learning enough that even though you didn't have the purpose to be an M&A advisor, that you thought it was valuable enough to learn to be able to understand what are those metrics what's important in my own company and communicating to my own people. Thanks for that uh, encouragement, exhortation there. So you did a really good job of communicating your why. I mean, I can tell like this all just comes like straight out of you. This is who you are. It's almost like you had a head start on the treadmill um, growing <laughs> up. In fact, I, I have to say when you were talking about, you know, your dad had his own business, we find here that, Engineers coming out of college that we're recruiting or, or interviewing, I find without any question, those who come from what I would call construction families mm-hmm. or business families have a big head start, but particularly engineers that come from the same story. Oh, I was serving with my dad at age 14. I was, my dad was a, a, a Finnish carpenter or my, my mom, you know, Ran a ran a WBE business and I worked with ODOT or whatever the story is. Mm-hmm. They all have a head start because it's kind of embedded in who they are. They don't realize that they already think like the constructor, the builder, the installer, the fabricator, the applicator, because that's how they've been raised, right? And, and your your story is a classic example, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean. <clears throat> that experience that you just described gives those individuals like tremendous context on the other people that you're collaborating with on how, how things we do impact the other trades and the other partners. So that anytime you can create context through experience, training, development, like you're, you're putting your team in a much better position to succeed. Yeah. I find it. um, That's one of my, one of the frustrations we have here, our consultants get out in the field a lot, but you know, our structural engineers are behind the computer a lot. And boy, working nationally, it's hard to get people out in the field and see problems. Although current reality of, you know, pictures and virtual world helps it. Let's, let's move on from that. Um, I have a quick question for you. When we were talking uh, before we started about the context of your business, You've experienced some success as a, uh, let me call it a digital business or a virtual business or a business that has not just everybody working in an office. Talk about that. You guys, is your talent pool national, even though your work is more centered in Massachusetts? Sure. Um, so launching a business in 2016, right? We're, we're in the middle of this 12-year bull market, so to speak. Um, build it. Construction and development is booming in Boston. Uh, everybody that wants a job has a job. 
So when you started a new company, you don't have a brand recognition. You don't have a book of work or client or any of that exposure to really drive top talent to you. Uh, so finding people local to Boston was really challenging early on. And we recognized my partner and I, Jeremiah O'Neill, we both, we both thought that this remote work environment was coming over the next decade. COVID kind of accelerated all that. So we decided to make sure we built a business model that would operate remotely. And we started hiring remote employees back in 2017. And so from 2017 on, we had about 60% of our workforce boots on the ground here and about 40% um, engineers elsewhere. And, and it, was, it was vital for us to be able to grow. And actually since COVID, we're kind of, we're five years in now, it's 2021, five and a half years in or so. And we've been able to build brand awareness. We're back into, we do a lot of mid-rise, but high-rise, large-scale development. We have brand awareness in the market. And even through LinkedIn has been an amazing channel. We're actually attracting talent that's now moving to Boston to work with us and be a part of the culture, which has been like, uh, to us, is probably one of the, the biggest successes of what we've done today is to be able to create an environment that people want to be here and attract and retain top talent and give them an opportunity to, to fulfill their goals right so they're attracted to the culture of your company and it, do you mean they're also attracted to the culture of the boston area i think it's a little of both i'd like to think it's more of the company mm -hmm. <laughs> well and when we say boston you know cambridge boston the whole surrounding area i mean it has stayed pretty hot the whole time uh there's so much with the tech centers and the r d centers are just continuing to go Austin, Seattle, uh, Bay Area, Boston. But I would say Boston is seems to be one of the hottest markets in the country. It's a very stable market. So to share with the with the audience a little bit about Boston, back in I think it was 2018, the mayor made a commitment to get 130,000 units approved by 2030. So huge runway and multifamily. There's a big housing demand here. And then the life science boom that's really happened over the last few years, like we can't create life science space in lab R&D space fast enough. I uh, heard a stat, I think it was about last month, there was about a million square feet of lab space about to hit the market over the next nine months and it's already accounted for. So if you're looking for lab and R&D space, you're out almost a year at least. So there's a lot of retrofitting going on. We're grabbing old office buildings, old mill buildings and converting them to lab R&D space. And then phase two, phase three lab and, and life science work is, is the, the GMP manufacturing facilities for the production that's a little bit outside of Boston, but it's a really exciting time around here. It is exciting. Well, you've done significant work. Um, you were prophetic in your planning because uh, COVID did accelerate that as it did for many. Um, so congratulations on that and congratulations on the success. You, you said LinkedIn has been a successful social media channel for you? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things from the CBGA program that really kind of dawned on me during that whole time, you'll hear a common complaint, right? Good people are hard to find, or there's businesses that say they don't have the right team to, to do the work or they're making mistakes. But I think a better question is, what are we doing as a company to attract talent? What, what's our differentiate? What's our value proposition to our own employees or prospective employees? What do we do that's different than another company? Why do they choose us over somebody else? And if we're not getting out there and sharing that message, we could have the best company in the world. If people don't know about it, 
we're doing a disservice because we're not showing that this is an opportunity for people to work with us, work for us, whatever that may be. And LinkedIn, as far as our industry and a business to business channel is instrumental. You can target your market for free. You can go out there and connect. You want to work with somebody, you want to promote yourself with architects, developers, you want to talk to other engineers. You can proactively search and connect with them. And if you're going to do that, I would say don't ask for anything in return other than just being able to connect with them on LinkedIn. Amen. Start, start creating content. Try to provide value to your target market. So my strategy on LinkedIn is we're doing a lot of what we're talking about here today. We're trying to share like our culture and organizational, like showing that we understand what good organizational practice looks like, showing that we're aware of the employee pain points and sharing how we solve them sharing that we understand our client pain points, sharing how we solve them, and just trying to deliver value to both of those things. Because when I think about what is the most, what is the most critical thing we could be doing for the future of our company, and it's creating brand awareness to attract like-minded talent and to attract like-minded clients. If we can do those two things well, everything else is going to solve itself. Thank you. That's well said. I find few things more disingenuous to your point. I find few things more disingenuous in feeling of manipulation than when somebody requests a connection and I go, yeah, that looks like a good connection. And then immediately I've got something in my inbox asking me to buy something. I'm like, I'll give them one shot. I'll say, Hey, I thought you actually, I'm actually just wanting to connect and build relationships. And you're right. Provide more value than you receive. I'm not going to buy something from you if I just connected with you, unless we've already been warming up for a while and, so thanks for your mindset there. That's really helpful. I think LinkedIn, I've said it before. Others have said it. I wish we could keep it a bigger secret, but it is the most undervalued social media platform business to business. It's way undervalued by people. So undervalued. Look, I'll see people in the marketing world that's really gone all in and have big followings or generating a ton of business and opportunity and huge audiences on LinkedIn. As far as the design industry, it's in its infancy. Like I, I have a fairly small following, pretty regular creating content. There's a lack of engagement when it comes to the design and construction world. So for example, a lot of my clients and people I run into around the design and construction world, every time I see them, they talk to me about my content, but they rarely engage. No likes, no comments. They're just observers. And I think the, the trend you're going to start to see over the next 12 to 24 months is the realization of how valuable having an audience and sharing your perspectives and thought leadership on a, on a platform like LinkedIn generates a ton of value. Even let's say an employee, right? You're a mid-level or entry-level employee. If you get out there and start building relationships, engaging with people on LinkedIn, we'll do tremendous things for your career. You'll, you'll never be without a job. Yeah. Let's stay on this for a minute. I really like the um, yeah, the commentary on the whole LinkedIn thing. I lost my train of thought for a minute, but um, providing content and to your point about watchers and listeners versus likers and commenters, I don't know what the metric is, but I am constantly amazed. I'll I'll walk into a networking event or a facades plus or something, and I have somebody who I don't even know, or I, maybe I connected with them on LinkedIn at some point, say, ah, oh, I love your blog. And that podcast 24 was really good. 
I have no idea because again, they, they are watching, they're, they're reading, they're listening. I, I'll bet for every one that does, there's 20 that just scroll through and don't want to like it, but you're right. It, people are watching, people are listening. If you're creating content that's of value, people are going to recognize it. Yeah, so, it really is tremendous value. And that's where I actually look at views more than anything. The, the likes, the comments, the shares, those help build organic reach, but views still paint a good picture. Yeah. Uh, and, and for example, like I think I have about 4,500 connections and followers on LinkedIn, but generating about 150,000 views a month on our brand, which wow. I couldn't think of another platform where I could do that. No. For the effort that we do. No way. That's spectacular. I think that one that got the most for me, and then we'll move on. It just, I never know what's going to play well, you know, for sure. We had the privilege of working on a job called Rainier Square, 56-story custom curtain wall with Walters and Wolf in Seattle. It's yeah. called the boot. It's got a, a special um, kind of pioneering structural design with a big tubular core. It's about 40% lighter in, in steel and concrete than most buildings. And it's just a beautiful building. Mm-hmm. I posted a picture of that and just some pretty normal content. I think I got about 12,000 views and a couple hundred engagements on it. I, I never would have expected that. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is. So you, uh, on some of the topics, you, you already talked about some common organizational flaws. You had a comment about formal training and development. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about there in terms of your attitude and mindset on formal training and development? 100%. Training isn't just you take an entry-level engineer and you stick them under a project manager and they just learn by working on jobs. That's not training. Another thing that's not training is lunch and learns, not training, or monthly tech docs. Like that, the organization is not putting their best foot forward to put their team in a position where they can grow. Uh, if, if that's how an organization is running, every single person is hitting the same bumps in the road. They're all making the same mistake and just learning through experience, but that's a very long progressive path. So when we talk about training and development, it's having a written documented training process and it shouldn't just be technical of what we do. We we have very technical jobs, so that's very important. Ultimately, that's the service that we're delivering. Um, But when you think about like, are you training people on like, what is the mission, vision, values, how we operate. What's the, do you have a design framework? Do you have a design process that you follow? What are the skills and competencies you need to develop in the first three months of your job, right? What's expected of you to what standards? These are all things, how do you, how do you manage people? How do you delegate tasks? How do you give feedback? Are these a part of organizational training or are they things that you just expect people to pick up along the way? And I think good organizational practice. So something I see in the design world, a lot of it is you just kind of learn by experience. You might have like standard typical details and design drawings, but it's having an op- a design framework. So how do you approach the design? When are you pushing for certain decisions? Um, what's the, what are the standards that you design to at each design level, schematic design, DD, CD permit? And then like quality, quality control after you have training, right? You're building competencies so that you know you're putting people in a position to succeed within your operational framework, which for us is a design process. Now, quality management is checking to make sure that that person followed the process and that they designed to those standards. What a lot of people think in this industry is quality control is a senior person reviews a design after it's done. 
but with no process, no standards, just their gut and their experience, right? And I think that's a tremendous game changer in terms of creating organizational quality. What happens in the other model is that you have an A team, a B team, and a C team. Like, oh, they're a great company to work with, provided you work with so-and-so, instead of they're a great company. When you can share that knowledge through process and training, that's the winning formula. Do you find a constant or consistent tension in the time available and opportunity to train versus what you really would like to do? Or do you find it's pretty well aligned? There are definitely waves, right? So I, I think we're, we're a high growth organization. We're going to continue to grow. So there's always going to be periods of time where you're, you're stressing your organization to where everyone's go, 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 putting in the time to get the work done. Those should be sprints. If that's something that you're doing over the course of an entire year, two quarters, um, what you're really doing, there's a lack of organizational planning there. So, right, that's a, that's a symptom. Going back to the symptom, there's an organizational flaw that led there. So you're either saying yes to too much work, not identifying where you make the biggest and best profits. Um, the design process and the training, that also allows us to create time. So we leverage automation and design process. We, we really limit rework and scope creep. By doing those things, we're educating our team on how to allocate their time well so that we avoid those so that we can use our, our time to focus on high value stuff. No one putting together typical details is providing value. Right. But it takes time. So how do you automate that? How do you limit how much time you need to spend? Right. We use Revit in an Excel spreadsheet where you answer a few questions. Our Excel spreadsheet says every single detail you should have in there that uploads to Revit. Revit creates all of our typical detail sheets. So instead of spending a day or two organizing typical details and then missing three important ones, we automated that process so that we don't have to do that. Yeah, that's really good. You're right. Um, you know, if you did 80-20 rule, you could say, let's just be really broad brush. 80% yep. um, of the work takes 20% of the time and 20% of the work takes 80% of the time. And you really do want to be able to attack those difficult areas and details and transitions and, and struggles and not have to waste time. Yeah. On the, you know, churn and burn. We use a lot of math CAD templates. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think once you've done an ASCE seven wind load calc by hand, you, you don't a few times, you don't need to keep doing it. Just plug the values into the math CAD template or a spreadsheet and boom, there comes your design pressures, right? Got it. That's absolutely right. So if you're an organization that's training, you have a framework, you're, you're, you're paying attention to your, your deal flow and your available resources, you can make sure you're focused on those, those aligned projects that are, that are helping you move forward and you can create the time to train. Because so, I think if a company is operating and not creating the time to train, that's the company saying it's not a priority. Right. Um, <clears throat> how much of your time is spent uh, approximately, I, I know it probably changes week to week, but on a quarterly or annual basis, do you find a breakout? How much time are you doing like non-bill proposal business development versus, you know, PE reviews? Like how does that break down for you? Or are you spending all like you, you do operations, your partner does sales or you do PE work and he's like, how does that break out? Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. So we're still a smaller firm, just about 20 people, but 
again, like I think the most important thing for us to be doing is making sure we're putting our people in a position to succeed and giving them context to continue to grow our business. Um, and my job is to, my lights are turning off, um, is to amplify our brand awareness and, and continue to refine and reinforce that mission, vision, value, right? I'm the keeper of the mission, vision, values. Last year, um, I would say my billable time was about 40%. That's probably down to under 20% this year. It's a metric I probably got to come back to, but I'm under 20%. Yeah. A lot of my efforts are building brand awareness, the LinkedIn work, business development, meeting with existing and new clients. And then I currently am managing all of our proposals and new deals. And then gotcha. so a lot of my billable time <laughs> is actually in project turnover, like that conceptual level, getting the getting everybody integrated and on the right track. And then I move on to the new deal. And then sometimes a part of that quality control and, and answering certain technical or, or client related questions. Yeah, that makes sense. So your billable time is spread amongst different jobs. You're doing a kickoff meeting, you're doing a project closeout meeting, you're jumping in if somebody needs some high level advice or, Hey, Rince, what would you think about a solution here? But yeah, that makes sense. And you've got to have that time devotion in order to continue to grow. It's very um, easy to say like, oh, that's a job I can do quickly or I do this. But if I start so taking chunks of my time away to do that, it's not aligned with where we're trying to go as a company. And I'm doing everybody on our team a disservice. Well, that is that is for sure. That's, that's really well said. Um, how about you as a person? Um, well, but before I go there, uh, you're, a, you're a fairly young professional but with a lot of experience, do you have any specific advice for others following your path, um, young professionals entering the workforce, that person who's a senior in college, or they've, they've just gotten out and they're really not sure what they want to do? Like any advice for folks entering the business and workforce, something that you're like, you really need to focus on this thing? Sure. To me, it's uh, find a way that makes life learning fun and painless. So what I mean by that is you want to develop a daily habit of where you're working on your mental health and stimulating your mind and growing as a person. So when I talk about like listening to audiobooks in the car, that, that doesn't feel like a chore to me. It's something I enjoy doing. I generally am listening to a book or a podcast about something I'm actively trying to solve or achieve. And it is 100% made me a better person, a better spouse, a better friend, a better leader, a better partner in all things, kind of business collaborator. Uh, it's made me more aware, given me better, better empathy. Like I couldn't, that is the underlying habit that's led to what success I have had, right? So it has changed me as a person. And I think that habit, you, the amount of curiosity that's created for me and the new perspectives I gained there, it, it has made me much more focused and helped me identify what's actually important to me in my life. So I, I don't get stressed out about or worry about wasting time on the things that aren't aligned with where I'm trying to go as a person. I like that. So lifelong learner is a big message for you. And yeah, if anybody thinks that the college degree is the end of the learning, that's a whole that's Another the biggest topic. flaw. That is the biggest flaw in America <laughs> is that like the, the, you graduate from learning when you graduate college. Couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, you're starting to learn when you graduate from college. Exactly. You've it's been the, given all the tools. You learn by which how to learn. You learn how to learn. Amen. <laughs> well said. Uh, we're, 
our podcast is going to be just a little shorter than our normal hour, five hour, 10 a day, just for the sake of your time and mine. But um, how about you as a person? Maybe you've already got into this. If if you have, then I'll, I'll move on to another question. But do you have any daily practices beyond the you know podcast listening? Like, do you have any daily practices? You journal, you, 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 you do triathlons, you you read a chapter of a book every day, you, uh, whatever. Do you have any mindsets or routines physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually that you practice that you feel help keep you grounded? Great question. Uh, habits and routine, I think are super important. I had the pleasure of really blowing my back out a couple of years ago. So I got a herniated disc. My lumbar spine's really a mess. And what I learned through that process was that if you get that type of injury, what that means is that you have poor movement patterns. You're you're, the human body is like the best adaptation machine. So if something's not working right, other areas start to pick up the slack. And apparently I was doing that for my entire life and, and my back gave out and I really created some damage. And what that led me to was move university or move you. Um, and it's a tremendous program, but it really taught me, it goes back to like learning how to use the muscles in your feet and reactivate all the muscles in your core and how to align your body. And so what that led is I use that as my workout routine and I pretty much do about anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes a day, every single day to start my day. I probably, I, I might miss 20 days a year, but that's become a fundamental habit of mine when I wake up because it started off as a necessity because my back needed it and I needed to retrain my body and the neuromuscular connection to like use my body the correct way on a daily basis. Uh, like you have to, you have to do things daily to build a good habit and to break the old bad habits. And that's what I was doing, but now it's a, it's a fundamental part of my day and it's made me a healthier person. So that's great move university. So you're, you're doing core and movement exercises, which my wife introduced me to these and I do find tremendous value. Um, daily has your herniated disc resolved has has your core really helped improve your ability to move and have you seen the benefit 100 so i i elected not to have surgery i had a pretty big disc herniation i think it was 10 millimeters or something so it was creating a lot of problems numb leg pain yeah and uh rebuilding the core muscles so like what happens when your spine is, is shutting off certain muscles in your body and you have to rebuild. Like I couldn't turn on certain parts of my core to maintain the correct posture. I had to build that muscle memory. And so, I mean, I've been doing that for, for two to three years now, and I now have that. So my posture is much better. My alignment's better and it's relieved that. So that herniation has relieved off the nerve. And I still know that my back's not perfect, but it is, I am a, I'm not made of glass anymore. I can go about my day. You're only going to get stronger. I hope that's an encouragement to others. I've had some similar experiences after I quit running because I was feeling miserable after 40 years of running. And I actually feel better now doing all types of different forms of exercises. So hopefully that's an encouragement to somebody out there because back problems are a big deal. We've got a couple minutes here. Are you a sports fan at all? I am. Are you? I, in- unfortunately, don't make as much time for sports as I used to, but my yeah. two kids, uh, wife, and work has kind of taken precedent, but so what about, so are you a Boston area sports fan, Bruins, Red Sox, Patriots? That's who we root for. 
So we have a little football game that'll, well, it'll be passed by the time this podcast produces, but we have a little football game this weekend between the New England Patriots and the Cleveland Browns. It's a beautiful thing. Isn't it? I, I heard rumors that we were picking up Odell. Did that happen? I, I can only hope so. There's only, only maybe one or two coaches in the league that could probably lay down the law and say, follow our way or follow the highway. And that would be Belichick, which by the way, we'll take credit in Cleveland for having trained him in his start, <laughs> which, True. and um, yeah, Nick Chubb has uh, tested positive for COVID our oh, rushing leader as has one of the other running backs. So I think we're going into new England with one running back and a practice squad guy. So. And we'll Nick see. was just hurt recently, right? Did he come back last week? He did. He had a, uh, 170 yards on 13 carries and two touchdowns or something. It's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. He's uh, I think he's already fourth in all in rushing all time for the Browns behind like Leroy Kelly and Jim Brown and whoever else, probably somebody I'm forgetting, but that's great. Yeah. The Cleveland Cleveland's got a a good foundation for a team that should uh, be good for competitive for a few years here. Yeah, I hope so. Well, may the best team win this weekend between the Pats and the Browns. That'll be fun. Um, anything you want to say? I, we could talk. You know what? You're right. We could do two or three other sessions. We could riff on structural engineering and um, have some fun. We might not get a ton of listeners, but we sure would have some fun. Maybe we can do that again. Anything you want to say before we sign off? Any final words? Any words of wisdom? I'll I'll leave a few cliffhangers. One is if you haven't considered uh, financial transparency and leading with open book management, something you should look into. I would highly recommend the great game of business. I honestly can't see business any other way than being open book financial. It gives everybody context to make better decisions and understand how value is created in the business. And the second piece is mass timber. I don't know how big that is in Cleveland but we see mass timber becoming one of the primary building systems over the next decade. Yeah. I love the whole thing. I, I love timber too. That is a good cliffhanger. Thank you for that. Well, uh, Renz, it's been spectacular. I'll see you on the PSMJ thread and on LinkedIn and on a future podcast together. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, he's Renz Hayes. He is a principal at H and O structural engineering. Check them out. We'll have everything in the show notes, the links to him, his profile, website for the company, um, any articles and such. I'm John Wheaton. I'm the host of the Creating Structure podcast. Thank you for listening. We're going to sign off. Have a great day, everybody.